This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. His family and folks close to him call him Amir. That's Amir Khalib Thompson. But you probably know him as Questlove. Philly native music history savant and drummer and music director for the Grammy award-winning hip-hop group, The Roots. When The Roots aren't in the studio or out on tour, they're backing up Jimmy Fallon on The Tonight Show. But here, dude, I gotta say, you're one of the hardest working guys ever. We love you so much, you know, and you and the guys are just the coolest. Uh, We've been uh, doing this uh, together for, what, like seven years now? Six, seven years, Six, seven years. He's been called America's band leader. The 45-year-old drummer is also a DJ, and he's been a caterer. He just came out with a book about food this year. Questlove is constantly creating, trying to do the many things he loves seemingly all at once. But one thing Questlove doesn't do well is take compliments, which explains his reaction to a very flattering profile in The New Yorker. Uh, I was pleased. You were? Yeah, I... I don't know. I've been taught to... Not uh, relish in celebration of of press stuff because I do so much. Um, you can't let it matter. I mean, after a while, it's just like eh, okay. Yeah. I mean, it's like now I I don't think I've watched a Tonight Show episode in like two years. You haven't watched your show unless it's super epic. I mean, if it's like Phil Collins, then I'll watch it to make sure. <laughs> Have we officially started? We started. Okay. Um, I read this piece in the New Yorker and. I mean, just for my money, I mean, these press things aren't that important, you're right, but this piece is very complimentary and real and honest. And I'm thinking, what do you miss about them? What do you miss about Philly? Is it Osage Street? Osage Avenue. Osage Avenue, mom and dad, the drums, the basement. What do you miss about back before you, you made it? You know, you know, it's weird. Um, my sister always rags me about this. Um, and this will probably mark the first time that I haven't made a pilgrimage. Um, there's certain luminaries in hip hop that will go back to the old hood. And I'm like, dog, like, why are you, why are you driving a Bentley through the projects? You know what I mean? Like that having that moment, I mean, mine's the exact opposite. Cause my car is like, I'm still driving my first car, which is You're still like driving a, the Scion. The Scion. No. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm never going to give it up. I mean, I have other cars, but my Scion is, is my baby. But, um, uh, I, I don't know. Like I have this. I often have this craving to uh, drive back, just drive back and look for old ghosts. Um, it's it's weird. It's it's even uh, even like with with food, like I'll question why am I s- sticking to a certain diet from my childhood? Am I hoping to? To find old ghosts, or I—I I don't know what it is, but um, what's a diet from your childhood you would stick to? I mean, I'm in a place now, in a position in which I could be at the prime healthiest of my life if I chose to. And you know, it, as I speak to you, I'm back on that bandwagon. In the piece, you talk about a Greek chorus of health people around you, whatever. Yeah, phrase. they're back. They're back and just singing louder than ever because I, <laughs> I let because you asked for it because I let 2016 be 2016, and it's you know it, it took a toll on me. So I I decided after Thanksgiving, I'm going back to you know to to fight for my life again. Um, and I think during Thanksgiving, 
I, I don't know. I was just thinking of those psychological process. And I'm like, well, you know, what is it when you taste these collard greens? What is it when you when you eat this particular type of soul food? Like, are you missing memories of of, of grandma on on a Sunday? Like, food was a very big part of our my childhood. And uh, I'll say, like, the process would start on Thursday. I'd stayed at my grandmother's house, and it was always like a—it was an event. And Thursdays, like, she and her sisters would start the process of cooking Sunday dinner. So Thursdays, Fridays, Saturdays, even, like, while watching Soul Train, I'd help with snap beans. Uh, They're the type of people that would, like, start a cake on a Monday and drown it in— uh, brandy for about three weeks. Don't touch that cake, come here. You know, that sort of thing. Uh, so it was like always a big process for this sprawling Sunday dinner. Like every Sunday was like Thanksgiving. Every Sunday was Thanksgiving. And special. Yeah, it, it was special. So I don't know. Maybe I'm looking for my identity now that I've been sort of. Uh, uh, I don't want to say misplaced or, you know, I've I've transitioned to another life, another lifestyle, which I'm kind of separate from my childhood memories, which probably explains the Soul Train obsession, which explains like now now that I've I've had time to to really think about it, and especially in the last week, it's it's making sense. Like I don't think I'm collecting 700 episodes of Soul Train because. I really think that's an awesome show. Of course, I think it's an awesome show, but, you know, in my mind, I'm something thinking... something else going on. Yeah, in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, the Frankie Valley 1977 episode of Soul Train, my sister and I almost burnt down the house using the Jiffy popcorn on the <laughs> stove. Uh, the Johnny Guitar Watson episode of Soul Train, I remember, like, cutting my hand on the uh, the No Frills ravioli from Pathmark. Uh, the... 79 episode of the Jacksons. I remember stubbing my toe in the coffee. Like, there's there's certain childhood memories that are associated with every episode of Soul Train. So I think that's why I hang on to it. Um, and plus, like, being part of a, uh, you know, being in the quote-unquote hip-hop generation, uh, a culture that celebrates youth so much, um, I think... Just the idea of transitioning or metamorphosis or even just vanishing, which I think I think the idea of vanishing is what's really controlling a lot of Americans' thoughts in 2016. What's vanishing? The idea of not mattering, old traditions leaving, the idea of change, the idea of... Is this related to the election or not? I, I, no, right. just every yeah, yeah, everything. It could be the election. It could be me personally. I think that you have a sense of, the, of some things vanishing. Um, or is, that, or is that approaching middle age? You're how old now? You're forty. I'm forty five. I'm forty five. Yeah, I think just in general, there's something about 2016 that is transitioning more than anything. I, for one, um, as a musician and a lover of the arts. Um, you know, this is the 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 largest amount of, I mean, the sheer volume of people dying in 2016. Um, it, it's, for me, this is this is uh, 
a message. I feel more of my childhood being, I feel more me being stripped away than just like, oh, Natalie Cole died. Oh, Maurice White died. Ah, Prince died. Oh, th-. like, you know, it's it's up to like- Pieces of your life. 23 key members of my life that, you know, shaped my life are like now gone. In this year? This year alone. 23. Dude, I mean, my, it's to the point that even when I was writing um, on my Instagram, the uh, there's a, a, a well-known, well-loved uh, house singer named Colonel Abrams. I was hesitating to write a tribute to him on Instagram because now, like, it was to the point where people were like, oh, Amir, you're just the, the obituary historian. Like your Instagram has come become nothing but these long two paragraph <laughs> tributes to da da da's life. Like it's it's almost like a, a a joke now, and that's that's where it's come to. But I think more than that, it's just I think that all of us right now are fearing a transition, if you will. So you know when I when I do drive back home and you know sit there in the parking lot and and here at the house and everything i i don't know i think i'm maybe I, in my mind i'm jacob marley looking for my younger seven-year-old self on going to school or something see this is the thing i want to get to which is when i read the article and i don't want to keep referencing that article but when i read the article it's like you kind of get the sense of like how much longer are you going to do this that this is going to be enough for you meaning Music will be in your life, maybe in some other way. Something tells me your love, your worship, music being in your DNA in the way it is so completely from what I read. I mean, you being, mm-hmm. you know, people, you're like some combination of like, uh, uh, you're like Mozart and Alan Turing, yeah. you know, this savantish freak in a good way about yeah. music and so forth and entertainment for that matter. But I'm wondering, so I'm assuming, assuming you'll have some place in your life. Where do you think it's well, going to Well, it's weird because since that New Yorker article came out, um, it has blossomed and bloomed tenfold um, to the point where I guess at that time uh, I had, let's say I had uh, maybe eight jobs um, up until early January. I mean, I had 16, 16 jobs. Like I just decided maybe a month ago to not return to NYU to teach um, because... What were you teaching there um, specifically? I taught taught music history. I taught uh, at the Clive Davis Music School. Me and uh, Harry Wagner, who controls all of Universal uh, Music's uh, reissues. So anytime you get like... He's the guy that has to sit back and figure out how to resell you Marvin Gaye's box set or anything from Motown or anything from the Rolling Stones, anybody universal uh, related on that label. So he and I taught at NYU for the last five years. Um, and mostly we... we I, I like How the, was that experience? Uh, it got scary the last year because suddenly I realized... I mean, I mean, you, you, you have children, so I'm sure that there's a point in your life where you just a sentence start with millennials, like you know. <laughs> just, I go there, <laughs> right? And um, it was frustrating. It's it's 
it's an amazing mystery because are they all rich kids? Um, kind of. No, I mean some some are. I mean some are well to do. I've realized that uh, some came from the lineage of oh that's your father, you know that sort of thing. Um, but it was to the point where because the information is so abundant now, I actually caught myself wanting them to teach me as I was, I mean, the questions they were asking about uh, like the production methods of Michael Jackson's thriller. Well, you know, on human nature, uh, I hear a Fairlight synthesizer, but what do you think that was the 82 module or the, and I was like. <laughs> Get that into it. I was like, huh? <laughs> that, that's who's in that class. Yeah, that's who's in that class. That's a so take on that. It got scary for a minute. But um, what, what I specifically taught about was um, the departure record. I'm really, I'm really obsessed with the idea of self-sabotaging. Um, there's a movie that came out uh, by comedian Mike Birbiglia right. called uh, Don't Think Twice. And actually, um, coming up, uh, the, the follow-up to Whiplash is a, f- a film called uh, Land of Lala with uh, Emma Stone. La La Land. Uh, La La Land. I'm yeah. sorry. I'm, I'm getting that. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, La La Land with Emma Stone and um, Ryan Gosling, which sort of uh, deals with the same uh, premise, which is, have, have, have you seen Don't Think Twice or no. heard about this film? Okay, so Don't Think Twice is a film about um, a groundlings or a, a, a kind of a comedy troupe. Um, UCB. UCB-ish yeah. comedy troupe of like seven people. Um, who are really like at the top of their game with improv. And then one day a Steve Higgins figure uh, comes in and changes one of their lives by offering them a spot on an SNL-ish type of uh, platform. And uh, one of them, one of the seven that have been tightening it forever will clearly be a star. Um and of the seven, you know, it's like, it's how they deal with the idea of, again, separation. And and it's it's just an amazing two-hour exercise in self-sabotage. So how it relates to the class that I teach, uh, I teach about departure albums. Uh, in other words, uh, okay, so the Beatles got tired of being the Beatles. They got tired of playing in stadiums in which they couldn't hear themselves or the screaming and yada yada yada, you know the story. Assuming that you're And love, love, love. Assuming that your 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 listeners are on your IQ level. Um the, They're all smarter than I am, trust me. Okay. So they get to so Shea Stadium after that they pack it in. Right. Then they decide we're tired of being the Beatles, so let's just make uh, you know, a psychedelic record and Tim Pan Alley references and and we'll stop being the Beatles. And then it backfires and really makes them like the greatest band of all time. So uh, speaking of Sgt. Peppers, uh, that's an example. Or the opposite is Sly Stone, whom uh, after having a massive like one single hits off of his records, finally hits jackpot in uh, 1969 with the Stand album. And then a very, you know, a, 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 a... victorious uh, uh, run at, at Woodstock uh, leaves his audience like just 
you know, begging for more and whatever his follow-up records is going to be like, you know, it, it's it's the ultimate alley-oop setup. Someone just shot an alley-oop and all he has to do is run to the to the rim and dunk it. And what does he do? He makes one of the most depressing <laughs> dr- <laughs> dr- dr- drug What album fuel. is that? Let's go get that. What is that? It's called There's a Riot Going On. Now, the thing is... What's, what, was there a hit on that? Yeah, Family Affair. Here's the thing. There's a Riot Going On leaves a lot of people in conflict because it's essentially the first funk record. But... What I try to explain to the class is the equivalent of, you know, how like your first, okay, not for you personally, but how a person in 2006, how their first instinct will be to pull out their cell phone. If a car accident happens, they pull out their cell phone. Oh, a fight happens. I'm going to pull out my cell phone to watch it. What there is a right going on is, is really you're, you're watching in real time a human being having a meltdown on wax and it's it is it's like all do do you know personally why was he melting down well that's the thing there's there's survivor's guilt that people don't talk about especially with black people the idea of like you reference in the article where you say the 33 kids and this one's dead this one's in jail this one's right and you made it dude survivor's guilt survivor's guilt is real where is he from He's from uh, the Bay Area, Oakland. Okay. So, I mean, there's the pressure of staying true, staying true to yourself, not not selling out. Uh, the Just the pressure of having to now deal with, be careful, you know, you hear all the time, be careful what you ask for. And I feel as though in those two years of of the pressure of now I have to live up to the expectation and the brilliance that people expect of me. And what does he do? He, I mean, Sly and the Family Stone was in the age of Martin Luther King, the the utopian dream. It was a group of black and white musicians, a male and female musicians. I mean, it was the utopian poster idea of what Martin Luther King's dream should have been. And he just pissed on the legacy. In turn, he also gave us funk music I mean, you know, historians will be like, well, you know, it's the first time a drum machine was used. And it's the first time, you know, the E chord was used on a on a bass for funk reasons. So what's, it was like, the, what's the big hit that comes out before this album? What's he riding the wave on? What song? Uh, the, the, the hit before was, uh, I mean, the album before was Stand. Now, to sort of stall for time, uh, Epic Records put out a Greatest Hits album and put three other songs that weren't associated. So... Thank you for like be, be myself, right? Yeah, thank you for letting me be myself. Uh, hot fun this summertime. Uh, everybody's just, like even even the throwaway singers were like, "Yes, we're waiting. We're waiting for this big statement." And he pisses all over it. But you know, it's the same for you know Michael Jackson wanting to escape the family and be his own man. Like making off the wall was a departure record. The Beastie Boys. Not wanting to be known as, as these these uh, party frat guys, and want to make a, a serious uh, piece of art with uh, Paul's boutique, the follow up to License to Ill. So, what I basically do is I, I take uh, eight or nine records of departure records. Some of them they were all made with the premise of I need to throw away and run away from what I once was. 
Some of them made them more successful, a la the Beatles. Uh, some of them were a complete bust. I mean, there's the jury's still out on Satanic Majesty's request by the Stones, but you know, <laughs> some good things there. It's it's you know, it's 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 the Stones were never going to get Beatles love, and they know it. Well, they tried. Yeah, they tried. I mean, you know, I have to give it to them. They tried. So it's really, it's really just about examining uh, the psychological process of of making music and why we run away from success or the idea of doing it. Did you? Run well, away? wait. Let me ask you because this is well, the first did, thing. Did, I... did you? Did you run away from success? Um. Okay. So the Roots were everyone's favorite underground secret. Like you know, there's. If you ever meet a music snob and there's like that that one thing that, you know, there's the band that they know about that you don't know about and that makes them cooler than you. Right. And then suddenly you discover it and then everyone discovers it and then suddenly it's like, ah, like everyone has my toy now. It's in the pool, yeah. Yeah. Uh, we were that for a lot of people. And then with our fourth record, suddenly we hit jackpot because we realized what the formula was to... Not to monetize, but to 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 gain acceptance. We realized what the formula was. But acceptance with what? You it seems it seems to me you wanted acceptance with something else. Meaning something tells me because you're so acute about music, you didn't have a number one single. This is what and, you're going to learn and, about and, me. And you could and you could have sat down and t- something tells me, and I'm not saying this to be mm-hmm. kind. You could write a number one single. In the car on the way to the office right now when you leave here. And you didn't do that because... Fear. 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 This is what happens. Okay, so when we started in 1992, um, the idea of a roots, the idea of... We would be pegged into alternative hip-hop. Now, when we first came out, they were like, were they acid jazz? It was like, basically, if you weren't... If you weren't holding your middle finger out to the camera, you know, saying, singing straight out of Compton, if you weren't in WA, you weren't the status quo of what people perceive to be as hip hop. Um, but again, like for people that are not immersed in hip hop culture, when they just turn the channel and just see, bitches, then they just think, oh, that's all it is. Um, which it isn't. Like hip hop is, is a wide array of art, and it just so happens that the five percent that catches on is what's in, in embroidered in people's minds as what it is. But emotionally violent. That's what they think it is. Right. But it's so much more than it that. is. More so than I came into, uh, metaphorically speaking, we got to the train platform as the first wave of alternative hip hop. Uh, train was leaving you know like when you run for the train and the doors close and you see the train leave and you have to wait for another 12 minutes for the next train to come that was the roots the first train was the jungle brothers a tribe called quest de la soul uh it, it kind of uh ended with arrested development like in 91 like they won like four grammys they were the darlings of you know finally uh hip-hop is an art like you know people were were exclaiming that like our new savior critical mass right and then the backlash happened like imagine that being the obama era like finally a new beginning and then suddenly the next train comes in and, and it's, it's an like outlier dr dre and snoop dogg coming in with guns and bitches and shit and people are like no this is what we want so imagine this election like how could we go 12 steps back and that was the mentality 
And so we had to wait it out and wait it out and literally embrace for it a tsunami. We just said, we're going to pull a Hendrix. We're going to leave America. We're going to move to London as a hub, find refuge in, in, in London, uh, get our musicianship together, get our show together, get our songwriting together, get our production what together. What year was that? Uh, we got a record deal in 92. We exiled in 94. For how long? Um, three years. When Three years you live. We were, on, we were on Geffen Records. And in 90, 91, 92, Geffen Records had so much money. Guns N' Roses, Nirvana, uh, Aerosmith. They made so much money that Geffen was like, yo, let's start a black music department. We're a rock label. We have no black acts and, you know, we want to cash in on, on, you know, the, the, the craze. And so. What was the label's name? Geffen. He just stayed Geffen. It was all yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, by then it was like DGC. There yeah. was a DGC. Okay. But um, we were basically kind of their guinea pig experiment. Um, they were like, you know, we'll, we'll build a staff eventually, but. For now, look, just keep the receipts. Here's the credit card. <laughs> We're like, what? <laughs> That's what we did. And then... Um, Anybody married back then with kids that they had to pull over there or no? Everybody was single. No, young. we were all single. We were, we were young. all out of high school and college and everything. And so what wound up happening was when we first signed, Aerosmith announced, well, we're going to leave Geffen. You remember Pump came out and it was like a really big seller. So they went back to Sony. And so it was like, oh, Whatever. And then a little bit later, it was kind of obvious that like, Guns N' Roses was not going to have a follow-up to Use Your Illusion 1 and 2. And uh, I mean, they had an EP, The Spaghetti Incidents, but that really didn't make any noise. And so Guns N' Roses wasn't there to have a follow-up record to make them more millions. And then Nirvana came and, you know, just changed everything and made gazillions. So then when April of 1994 comes... And Kurt Cobain makes his exodus. My manager called me at one in the afternoon and said, plain and simple, we're fucked. And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, dude, Aerosmith's gone. Guns N' Roses ain't coming back. Kirk has left the And building. now Kirk is gone. And what they're going to do is they're, they're just going to drop and cut the label in half. I was like, so what do we do? He's like, we're going to go to the studio for four days. We're going to finish the record. I was like, eight songs? He says, yep. I don't have any ideas. Make them up on the way there. And <laughs> he's like, we're going to shoot three videos next week. We're going to shoot the album, like, totally rushed. And then we're going to take that money, because we were controlling our budget. They didn't have a staff yet. We just had the credit card. We're going to take our leftover money, and we're going to buy 10 plane tickets and get an apartment in London and pull a Hendrix and just live there and pray to God. That's our only hope. And, you know, that was our only hope, and it worked. Uh, we f miraculously finished an album, and it, even in rushing it, I'm s shocked. I mean, it was critically acclaimed and all that, so we were in the right mind frame. Shot three videos, uh, kissed everybody goodbye, came to London with a, a, a stick and a bundle on our <laughs> backs. Um, stayed in a hotel for like maybe a day or two and then eventually found a flat, uh, got an agent, said, work is to death. We don't care what it was. And like, that was our Beatles in Hamburg moment. That was our, our Hendrix living in, in, in Europe moment. And we made 
two other critically acclaimed records, but by the fourth one, we felt if we didn't deliver the goods, uh, we'd be in trouble. And so we had a scientific conversation with our label. We said, look, before you, you know, divulge all this money into us, let's have a conversation. We told them that no matter how good the records are, no matter how critically acclaimed, how many top 10 lists we make, unless you build us a movement, it's never going to work. And they said, well, what is that? So we said, this is what we need. You want the short version or the long version? He said, give us a short version. We said, we need three 15-passenger vans. We need uh, expendable kind of uh, studio equipment. Uh, and we need to hire uh, two chefs. And they looked and said, what the hell? And we explained the plan. We said, what we're going to do is every Tuesday at this particular spot, we're going to have jam sessions. And every Friday in Amir's living room, we're going to have jam sessions. The chefs are going to cook all the food to entice the artistic community. Because if you say free food, me, me, you'd be surprised. <laughs> every, every, everybody, you'd be surprised. Right, everybody comes over. And we'll just have jam sessions. And eventually what we figured out in those four years was that no one has ever had success in music without being contextualized in an artistic community. So you think you like Stevie Wonder, but it's like, no, you associate Stevie Wonder with Smokey, Temptations, uh, Diana Ross and Supremes, the Motown family. You look at look at someone without design. Take Justin Timberlake. You're automatically going to think, oh, NSYNC, oh, Backstreet Boys, oh, Britney, Disney, Christina Aguilera. You think of the Disney set. You think of, of I mean, Prince grew his own crops. Prince Sheila E., Mars Day in the Time. It, like, everyone that has success. The only people that never had success, that had success without a family or contextualization, was one-hit wonders. Weird Al Yankovic, the guys that say Macarena, Tiny Tim, maybe the MacArthur part person. But everyone's associated with the movement. You look at the police. Okay, they were part of that post-punk punk movement, early new wave movement, talking heads, like... Even if they don't do it by design, we as consumers think that. So we had to grow our own crops. So as a result, in these three years of having the chef, the jam sessions week by week, um, suddenly we were writing the story of the next millennium of soul. So that explains Erica Badu, D'Angelo, uh, Most Def. Talib Kweli, basically the 14 or 15 or so platinum-based artists in the future, of course, uh, starting in our living room and then expanding, having their own careers. Well, these are my words, not yours, but, but if, if London is graduate school, if you all decide to stop. We found success uh, by our fourth album, and then, you know... The one thing that we didn't plan on was succeeding. Everyone got successful. So we stopped paying it for it. Like suddenly it's like, oh, we don't need the jam sessions no more. Like we're on MTV every week. Like that's that's what the mentality was. And then it all came to, I'm not saying it came to a screeching halt, but people often ask me, what do I talk? There's, there's a movie we did with Michelle Gondry and uh, Dave Chappelle in 2004 called Block Party. 
It was Dave Chappelle's version of uh, of Watt Stacks. It was Dave Chappelle's version of Woodstock, which was basically kind of the alternative, the alternative hip hop uh, gathering, you know, of in Brooklyn of all the great acts. It's Kanye West, uh, The Roots, Dead Prez, uh, Erica Badu, Common, um, all the all the people that are under our umbrella. And something happened that day, and I realized, just like, okay, if you look at Woodstock, Woodstock is not the beginning. You would think like, oh, Woodstock, all these new acts I never heard of, they're going to be big. Woodstock was the end of the sentence. People think that Woodstock's the beginning of the sentence. Woodstock's the end of the love movement because next was Altamont and and pain the 70s yeah. the 27 club everyone dying uh Saturday night fever people think oh the arrival of disco nope that was the end of disco <laughs> by the time hollywood puts it on screen it's over right it's over so this was that morning i was like ah uh, this is how it all ends and you know, it was like a, a brace. It was it was a brace. The, the mentality that you have, which how am I going to survive the next four years? Well, not you personally, but for the average American, like, ah, oh, got to hang on tight. I don't know what's going to happen. That's the feeling I had. I mean, on on screen, it looked very beautiful. Like Michelle Gondry is one of the best directors of all time. And, you know, it it looked like a beautiful celebration. But in my mind, I was like, well, this is where, you know, I once held the baton and now this youngster named Kanye West is going to take over the reins and he's going to be the new leader. And then I'm going to is get up. Um, he, yeah, at the time he was the new leader because when he arrived on the set suddenly, and I looked in everyone's eyes, any, anyone that was on the set that was like under 19 suddenly came at attention and all the energy and attention went to his direction. And he was just there to like stand outside for a second and look and, but he was new. He wasn't asking for it. He just got it. Well, he he sort of came in. His wolf and sheep's clothing approach is, is kind of brilliant. I really regret. Like, we tried to hide our true aspirations and our true heart because we didn't want to upset the system. So our thing was like, yes, we represent the everyday man, the common man. I mean, there's there's nothing in the Roots narrative that looks appealing to black people. Like we don't have any tales of, there's no tales of of of, there's no look, ma, I made it. That's the narrative. Jay Z's narrative is, I made it, I made it. Like it's just, it's a winning lottery ticket. I made it. That was never our narrative. So thus, the reason I mean the roots are more known to be fish or the Grateful Dead of hip hop mm-hmm. than, you know, the the winners of hip hop, but. You know, don't sleep. Fish is a group that somehow still made eight figures a year under the radar. They didn't have to shake their ass in a video. They didn't have to get mired in controversy. They quietly sell out Madison Square Garden three nights a week. And so that for us was a better was a better way of survival. Coming up, Questlove explains the magic of Jimmy Fallon and how Fallon convinced the Roots to join him on Late Night TV. Explore the Here's the Thing archives. I talked to Danny Bennett, who has spent his life managing the career of another musical giant, his dad, Tony. I had this epiphany 
And I'm like, I'm going to run. I'm going to do this like I'm running for president. And I went to him and I said, you know, presidents would not go to Iowa if they didn't have to go to Iowa and, and, and you know, shake the hands. I go, instead of having people come to you in Vegas, I said, your music transcends, right? He's reinventing himself. He's really kicking ass. I mean, in terms of like taking chances, there's a transcendent quality in great art that, that like he says, defies demographics. Take a listen at heresthething.org. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. My guest today is Amir Questlove Thompson. While he's best known as the drummer and music director for The Roots, the house band on The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon, he's also sat in for Erica Badu, Fiona Apple, Jay-Z, saxophonist Joshua Redman, and he's managed to put out several books. While some people were surprised when The Roots took the Fallon gig, Questlove is a man who has a lot he wants to accomplish. People think it's money, 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 and because it's not money, 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 you run and do something that frees you so you can go do this other thing. Right. And was this gig with Jimmy, Wait, it frees you? Can I ask you? Go for it. I hate to be the guy that no, answers no. your question with a the, with the question. Okay, so when you're first approached to do... 30 Rock. I mean, this is the tail the tail end of of uh, Scorsese film. Uh, Aviator. No, no, no. Even um, um, no, I know the cops. Boston. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, departed. Departed. Yeah. So even on the tail end of that, like anyone else, I feel. I mean, this is why I admire you so much. Anyone else would have overthought the situation and defiantly been like, no, like you know. The, the the particular legacy I want to re- leave behind is this and that, or you know, I don't know if you're thinking about your Wikipedia entry as you do these Rarely. things. I'm all no. See, I'm obsessed with how's this going to look on my Wikipedia <laughs> entry? Because when I'm you're surprised, long, do you say that? Uh, trust me, critic critics. One critic actually said, you know, the 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 sad the sad thing about listening to a Roots record is I can hear. Questlove imagining his Wikipedia entry as each song He's writing his obituary. Right, exactly. So, I mean, how easy was it for you to make that transition? Because people say to me, like, I didn't have posters of Schaefer or Doc Severson on my walls, like, (laughs) one day I'm going to do this. Yeah. And then it's like you're met with the opportunity, and it it was was a no-brainer. But it was also, on the other hand, I was very cautious about it. And my manager at the time said, look, this is what's going to happen. The critics that have been, and you have to understand how the roots are perceived in the critical community. And we kind of unfortunately pegged ourselves in this corner where, you know, they just thought like we were oh so serious and oh you know you know like a surface person will look at bono and think like ah he just thinks of himself too seriously and that sort of thing and like overthinks everything that's what critics were thinking about us and there he was like we need this because what what it will do is it will help break the perception of the political seriousness of the roots and i was like yeah but you know like i had dreams of of 
doing what he does, like selling out stadiums and producing, you know, releasing other records and da 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 da. And he was just it's like a conventional goal we all have. Yeah, and, and, I was there's just, a lot, and there's a lot of good there as well. I don't want to put it down. Right. To be DiCaprio, there's a lot of great things about being DiCaprio. It is, but I, I was, I so fought it, and he says, "Look, this is like some a critic sold you on it." Then a critic's going to snark you, and we got to use it as our motivation to really come back. And I was like, "Okay," and sure enough, it happened. The first uh, blur, news blur about. The Roots are actually going to be a late night band. The guy says, this is the most depressing news I've heard. It's the equivalent of Miles Davis being a uh, subway, a street subway. Uh, yeah, uh, a busker. A busker, yes, exactly. Which ironically is how The Roots started. Um, it's like it's like watching Miles Davis busk in the subway. Mm-hmm. And he's like, there you have it. Like, we've always been in the position where we were always on. And that's the thing. We've always been underestimated. Like, ah, these guys walking in with these instruments, they're not real. They're not real hip-hop, you know. We've always been in the underdog. What are you guys going to do? And he's like, just repeat it again. Use it to your advantage. Like, we should define and redefine the coolness of it all. Not to say that, oh, you know, there's shame or corniness associated with the position of being a late night band, but it was our chance to make it. And for us, at least the coolest thing ever. And that's basically what it was. Like we weren't even really going to accept the position. And then Jimmy did something that no other human being was able to do uh, with us. By this point, we were like the complete opposite of what we were in 92. This is like 2007. You know, two tour buses, you know, high off the hog and everything and in our glory. And uh, we just thought, okay, well, yeah, come to the show, Jimmy. We just figured, like, at least we'll have a friend on television so that when we release records, we can be on his show and promote it. But we're not going to accept this gig. And the funniest thing happened. I went away for five minutes to do. We were on UCLA campus. I went to do a quick uh, interview with the campus newspaper in my dressing room, and when it was over, six minutes later, I opened the door, and on the on the field grass, Jimmy and all eight members of the Roots were in the eight is enough human pyramid stance. And I looked at my manager, and we are the most cynical, snarkiest, smart-ass, know-it-all. You're, we're the smartest guys in the room and not you. We just looked at each other, and we're like, we're not giving him this guy, are we? And he just looked like, no, we're not. And what Jimmy managed to do was disarm us in less than 10 minutes. Like, Tariq alone, anything that Tariq wears is worth $20,000. Like, the G... He's not driving a Scion. Tariq was on... Yeah. I mean, Tariq drives a Porsche. He wears, like, $10,000 Japanese denim. You know what I mean? He was on the bottom... Like, Tariq would never put his jeans on... on The dirty stairs. The grass. I'm like, what did this guy do to talk... What did he do? What did he do? I don't... I'm still trying to figure. He has... (laughs) 
He's that guy. He's that guy. Like when you watch the movie and the 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 the, the guys are trying to disassemble the bomb in like point three seconds. Yeah. He has the luck of the draw. He knows exactly how to disarm you. He literally disarmed us and showed us the pros of the situation. It was as if we agreed to it already and forgot. Well, but but let me let me say that this that I worship Jimmy. I adore mm-hmm. Jimmy. And the thing is. Jimmy is guileless. Jimmy's a kid. Yeah. And, and, and that freedom and that, I mean, Jimmy's going to float up the ground. And, but we're all kids. Right. But what's great is you guys in behind him with, I'm not going to say cynicism, but there's a gravity, you guys. There's have. a balance. Exactly. There's, there's a, great, a balance. There's a great balance there. There's a great balance there. What I, what I discovered the first month in, first of all, what I discovered about myself and about the band, um... For starters, for a band that sat in Rolling Stone's 20 best band live bands of all time uh, list, I noticed that we never, ever practice as a band. Because our shows are Springsteen length, three hours every night, and we, we did 200 shows a night. Like, every show was like its own I I never wanted to snack before the meal you know you don't want to before the orgy whatever right uh right and so when we got there and we were in this closed-in room eight of us looking at each other it was the hardest thing in the world to do because we never did this before and like I had to call my manager like yo I don't know what to do. How do you rehearse? <laughs> it, we did not know how to rehearse. It was like being naked in, in public or something. Like It took three weeks, but suddenly we rehearsed and became better musicians. We became better songwriters. We became better producers because the, it's all these challenges of, okay, I need a 10-second sting for it. Da-da-da-da-da-da. Here's the name of the song now. And it, it made us more focused song. Like we're now, I felt like we've robbed our fan base those initial 15 years, uh, because we're so much wiser now uh, at songwriting, at being musicians, at entertaining. Like, there's so much knowledge that we've gotten that we didn't know. I thought it was going to be a cushy retirement gig. Okay, we'll just set off in the sunset. I'll be fine. My mom's house will be paid off. My mom will be paid. I'll be cool. But that was foolish. I was made for this gig. And didn't realize it yet. Are you guys going to tour or perform any time soon? Uh, thinking about it? We, what was once 38 weeks on the road is now a normal, 200 days on the road is now uh, 40, 50. You're going to go out again when? Which is normal. Uh, when we the do, show's over? We do weekends. We have hiatuses. Talk about your books. Yeah. Uh, well, it's the, the, the first book. Where'd you find time for that? Well, the thing is, I'm I'm a serial tweeter, which is why I know like people are ragging uh, our current president-elect about you know why do you get up at three and five? Eight? That's the best times to tweet ever. I don't want to defend him publicly that yeah, way, but a lot I'm of just good saying thoughts that... come flying in the window at three a.m. Trust me, <laughs> me too. I got the pad next to my bed. Right, exactly. I'm like, writing scenes down for TV shows on my exactly. pad. Exactly. So, um, I, because of the the. the 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 paragraph nature of all my Instagrams and and thoughts, um, 
they were basically like, well, why don't you just write a book already? And at first I was resistant to it because I was like, how many ideas do I have in me? But um, so far I've written three books and I'm kind of proud of it. Uh, the first book, Momenta Blues, is kind of a, a a music memoir where I talk about life and music. And the second one was a passion project. Uh, I'm very obsessed with the show Soul Train. So I wrote the ultimate coffee table book about Soul Train. And uh, my my last book was Something to Food About, which is I discovered that uh, comedians and uh, chefs are kind of on a parallel creative level as musicians. That's what I learned in, in Fallon, watching and observing David Chang and Dominique Anzell and uh, all these, these great chefs uh, when they're preparing foods for our show. Uh, I started to notice that they think like musicians and became friends with them and then did a kind of a observational study at their creative methods. Um, and I guess the the next book I'm going to work on is also about creativity. And Creativity in what, in what regard? Well, I, I'm, I'm the guy that doesn't necessarily... Uh, I don't marvel at the vehicle more than I marvel at the machinery that makes it run. And I'm always curious about the preparation process. Like, I beg Higgins daily to let me sit in on the, like, can I, I want to intern at SNL so I can be, and Lauren is not having none of this, by the way, uh, (laughs) to be there on the pitch meetings. Like, to to when I watch the show on Saturday, I'm always wondering what was the pitch like, like how did they pitch this, and how did it morph into what I'm watching right now? I want to know what it's like in the beginning. So like I'm always sneaking around on the 17th floor trying to figure out, you know, how SNL works. So like between chefs and comedians, I'm trying to inspire myself with the You're restless. The creative process, yes, and I'm also wrestling. Well, the thing I admire and the thing I'm so drawn to about you and that's so attractive about you is there's this discipline, there's this sense of history, and at the same time, like Tony Bennett, mm-hmm. who I always use him as the standard of this, it's like, but we also have to have a good time. This is what we dreamed of doing. Yes. We dreamed of being here. Let's have a good time. Yes. And enjoy because this is what we wanted and I, I get that. I get the two from you. I get the discipline, and the, and 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 the the the, uh, uh, the the professionalism, if you will. But I also get where you're like, let's live. I enjoy. It. Well, I enjoy it now. Before, uh, maybe five years ago, I didn't enjoy it uh, because you're so immersed in the work. But um, a lot of it. Well, I discovered meditating because. <laughs> Um, do or die. Well, yeah. It, I mean, I hate to be so morbid, but it was like, you know, again, growing up in hip-hop culture, the number one fear in your 20s is like bullets in the club. So it's like, ah, stay off the club. But then... Yeah, at, I read about this. At the age of 40, yeah, like <laughs> strokes became a new bullet. So it's like... Insulin. Yes, I, I had to make a choice. So, I, yes, having a clear mind and clear thoughts helps and i know it's it's such a hard sell Does meditating anyone. Work for you it saves my life like there's no way that you can have my rigorous schedule 
I feel so bad. Like my inner circle of nine people, I'm the only person without gray hair. And I look at them like, wow, I pay you people to take the gray hair that I, I'm i not getting. Well, let me just say this, that you're not married now. Uh, I have a girlfriend. You gotta go. No kids. No, no, not okay, yet. So here's what I want to. Here's what I want to try to close with. If I'm, if I'm able. Mm-hmm. Do you want to raise kids as well? Absolutely. Yeah, that'd be so cool. Absolutely. You, you, would, you would be such a great parent. Anybody that would have you as a parent would be so lucky. Uh, well, yeah. Thank you. It's weird. That I'm bad with compliments. Like, yeah. No, but you I'd, would be. I yeah. I feel as though everything that I'm doing is eventually to pass it on and pass the love to to someone. Drummer, DJ, author, and fingers crossed future father, Amir Questlove Thompson. You're listening to Here's the Thing from WNYC Studios.